0: I'm seated in a very delightful room, facing the mountains, and the scene is so peaceful. I I hope my pronunciation of the Welsh city is right. Penran Didreth. Oh no, even the clock sounds good to me. It sounds so natural. The clock, I hope it's not the clock of doom, but merely announces noon. On this very lovely and peaceful Tuesday morning, I'm seated opposite the distinguished, the eminent British philosopher, Lord Bertrand Russell and Lord Russell just seated here in front of the fireplace, the scene seems so peaceful, and yet the world outside seems so rife with tension, east, west, one accusing the other of being the villain of the peace and acclaiming himself the hero. And in recent months, nay, in, in recent years, sir, you've been speaking out against what you call this insane drive toward universal destruction. As a result of this, Lord Russell, uh, people have said you're yeah, one thing and another What are you, sir? What do you believe? Oh, let let me ask you a leading question, Lord Russell. On which side are you in this nuclear contest? I'm not
1: in either side. I think the contest is folly. And uh, what I want is to get the contest to die down. It's like uh, waves at sea after a great storm. Gradually the waves get less. And uh, that's what I should like to see. But I'm not on either side. I think the whole context, the whole contest, is just a mistake.
0: You were speaking, Lord Russell, in one of your lectures on this very theme of the tensions facing the world today. You were saying East, West, and namely the two large powers, Soviet Union on one side, the United States on the other, have so much in common. You were saying that nine-tenths of the interests are identical. It is only in the matter of ideology that they differ, and it seems so ridiculous to you that both should... I don't think ideology, really, plays any important
1: part whatever. It's simply a thing dragged in to reinforce armaments. The differences between East and West are differences as to power, not differences as to ideology. There is very little difference between uh, Russia and the United States. Each side thinks there's a great difference, but that's a mistake. There isn't much.
0: It's not that, it's simply the question, who is to have power? Uh, The question that arises, some will say, I'm sure some always say, but how can these differences be resolved? And really, war itself, uh, people say, uh, Cassandras will cry out, and they will put you in that category, Lord Russell that the world will be destroyed, but not really. This has been said of other weapons before in other wars, and man has survived. What is your answer to that, sir? Well,
1: there's never been any weapon of the same sort, never. Uh, If there had been, it would have arisen earlier. But uh, these new weapons have a destructive power that no weapons have had at any former time. And the existence of such weapons makes former strategies and former policies uh, out of date. Because in old days you could have a war and one side might win, and the side that won uh, could, uh, didn't mind having wiped out the other side. But nowadays both sides get wiped out, and neither side will win in a war. And so the, the war has become silly. uh, People have to say immoral, and I won't say it isn't immoral, but what I want to emphasize is that it's silly,
0: because nobody is going to get out of it what he wants. Nobody. Remember you were saying that there is a victor in this war. uh, One side may end with more H-bombs, but neither side will end with living human beings. (laughs) Remember that comment you'd made? (laughs) Well, Lord Russell, why do people... The great majority of people the world over feel as helpless as they do. They feel as impotent as they do. This seems to be in the air, I'm sure, all over the world. The feeling that the individual, I, John Smith, John Doe, says, I can't do anything about it. That's just a mistake. They can.
1: I, I, I mean, an individual, if he has the pluck and the independence of mind, uh, can do a very great deal. Uh, after all, here we sit, uh, no organisation, none whatever, and uh, uh, simply by expressing an opinion which is known to be unbiased, an individual can express can affect a very great deal. And this powerlessness of the individual is a form of cowardice. It's a pretense, an alibi for doing nothing.
0: This is interesting. This powerlessness, you think, is an alibi for doing nothing. Are you saying perhaps that inaction, not doing anything, is action in itself toward one's own death, I suppose? Certainly, yes. I mean, uh, uh, if you uh,
1: saw some brutal man ill treating a child. Well, if you had enough physical power, you would certainly intervene. And if you don't intervene, you share some of his guilt.
0: The non-intervention. This, of course, I suppose, was the case of the little man, the so-called little man in Germany, who says, what could I do? Would this be a parallel, perhaps, during the Nazi regime? He says, what could I do?
1: Well, it was very difficult under the Nazi regime because it really was thoroughgoing, going and it had its uh, extermination chambers and so forth. I think if the government is sufficiently fierce and was as fierce as the Nazis were, it is very difficult. But uh, the existing governments are not quite at that level of wickedness
0: well this being the case the existing governors not at that not at that level of wickedness what specifically i mean the the man who seems so alone and so helpless and he certainly is not in danger of being arrested or being having his door knocked down at 2 in the morning by some secret policeman what then what then can he do specifically to make his feelings felt as i'm sure most of the world feels war at this stage is insane uh, well, you see, there's not only one or two people who think this. There are a great many,
1: and he ought to seek out the people who think as he does, join organisations, and uh, uh, make his uh, feelings and the feelings of those who agree with him known. It's difficult because the press is against you. The broadly speaking, the press of the world is. Uh, Uh, determined to act in ways that will involve the extermination of mankind. And uh, that's because they're stupid, just stupid, because they don't seem to realize that uh, dividends are not paid
0: to corpses. (laughs) (laughs) I think, uh, Lord Russell, if if I follow you correctly, and I, I think I do, is that it's not a question of evil men at work right now as foolish men at work. I mean, silly men. Silly men, yes. The fact is that the world is different than it was generations ago, that a new form of destruction has been invented, and you're inferring then there is no winner, there will be no victor. Were there a battle between the powers, you're inferring there will be no victor. No, there would be no victory at all. Uh, if we had a, a big nuclear war
1: now with uh, Russia and America, the main combatants, well, uh, probably a very large percentage of the populations of Russia and America would be wiped out. The whole population of Western Europe and Britain, without exception, The the survivors would be ill, hungry, miserable, and savage. And uh, it would take ages and ages for the descendants of these survivors, of whom a very large percentage would be idiots or monsters, for the descendants of these people to build up anything again at all. And uh, during all that time there would be horror ghastliness, misery. And all that is simply because uh, the people of our time uh, couldn't see that agreement is better.
0: Well, this leads us to a subject of another group of men, Lord Russell, men who are brilliant, who in a sense have reveled, well this is the age of the scientific revolution. Refer to the scientists themselves. Now the whole history of science, has been a history of enlightenment. Has The men of science have always been enlightened men on the side of human values, haven't they by and large, Lord Russell? The men of science. Well,
1: I suppose
0: by and large they have, but uh, there have
1: been very important exceptions, and there are very important exceptions in the present day. Uh, a great many men of science have played a very honorable role in uh, trying to prevent the harm that threatens through nuclear weapons. But there have been, I regret to say, a fair number of men of science who have been willing to sell their services to governments and tell the lies that brought in an income.
0: Well, suppose a scientist says, it is my job to offer you knowledge, this new discovery I've made. How this knowledge is used by mankind is none of my concern. How do you answer that scientist?
1: I tell the man he's just making a silly mistake. How can he say it's none of his concern? If you see a homicidal maniac and you give him a revolver, are you not responsible for the people that he kills with it? course you are. And so, similarly, these men of science who've given the world something very much bigger than a revolver are... They share responsibility for what is done with it. They can't wash their hands of politics and say, oh,
0: no, that's not my concern.
1: It's just a form
0: of lazy cowardice. You point out a, a notable case of a scientist who would not allow his work to be used for destruction. During the Crimean War, I believe, in one of your lectures, you, you mentioned Faraday, yeah. who refused to work on poison gas. Yeah. He said it's feasible, but he refused to do it.
1: Well that was very creditable to Faraday. But uh, of course the Crimean War was not very important, and uh, anyway we won it without the help of poison gas. And uh, see, so although it's thoroughly creditable to Faraday, it, uh, there wasn't a government that was inclined to put pressure upon him. and uh, it wasn't as difficult for him as it is now. But I don't think scientists sort of shrink from a thing because it's difficult.
0: Lord Russell. Uh, of course, I'm, I'm always asking the case. There are young scientists, I'm sure, in all countries who love their wives and children, listen to good music, love their Mozart and Beethoven, read good books, perhaps even read early writings of Bertrand Russell, who work, who work for their governments. On, and they may not know exactly this. Uh, they know the precise work they are doing, but the overall result of it is something that might destroy Uh, the human race, or a large portion of it. Now, this is a dilemma in which this young man finds himself. How would you answer him? I should say, in the
1: world in which we are living now, any scientist who works for any government shares responsibility for mass murder and
0: is a man who cannot be tolerated by decent folk. Lord Russell, there there are a great many young people who admire you very much. Uh, They march, they sit down. And I think of some early BBC talk that you gave that was heard over our station in Chicago, why you like Turgenev. And you said because he dealt with eager young people, a society of eager young people whom one could easily grow to love if one knew them. Would you say it's their equivalents who are with you uh, during these days?
1: Well, there are a great many young people who are with me. You see, I think it's natural enough. People on the threshold of life are more anxious to live uh, than old people. Look at me, I'm 90. Well, I haven't much expectation anyhow. To me personally, it doesn't much matter whether there's a nuclear war or not. Uh, in the course of nature, I should die about the time that it happens. So that it doesn't very much matter to me personally. And the young people don't feel like that. They have their life ahead of them. They want to be allowed to live it. And they don't want these elderly ruffians to come and say, No, we'll wipe you out just to please us so that we may win the next election. They don't want that. And I think that's
0: very natural in the young and very praiseworthy. Were Were you the one who described these elderly ones as overage destroyers? I think I've heard that phrase used. (laughs) Lord Lord Russell, uh, assume that a madman does not push a button, a madman on either side does not push a button, which leads to another subject. Uh, You spoke of the dangers with the arsenals being built up. Uh, Sometimes it might be a local figure, a captain or an admiral, or it could be a lieutenant, since I guess the military men on both sides have been trained. Uh, to carry these weapons. It's possible there could be a mistake on some equipment, couldn't there? And then without without any uh, preconceived idea the battle, the end may begin. This too is a possibility, isn't it?
1: Oh yes, there are a great many possibilities of war beginning by accident. A great many. Uh, It might, uh, of course, as you know, the the uh, radar observers for the United States uh, mistook the moon for a flight of Soviet uh, vessels, and uh, nevertheless they said, oh, yes, radar's quite reliable, oh, yes. And uh, over oh, no, again they've mistaken a flight of geese for a flight of Soviet weapons. Uh, there are all those things. There's also the possibility that you were mentioning of uh, some uh, local fanatic. A captain in Polaris, he might very easily uh, brood and brood until he went mad. It's not at all unlikely, that's one thing. But, uh, of course, there is also the deliberate thing. The Cuba crisis was just an example of that. The deliberate action of the two main powers was uh, bringing the world to the very verge of war. and. Uh, I think we ought to give Khrushchev the credit that we're still alive. It is due to Khrushchev personally that you and I are here talking and still alive. Uh, But for his rather wise action in withdrawing at the last moment, which would have been wiser if it had been earlier, but still it's very wise to have done it at any stage. But for his personal determination to to withdraw you and I would be dead, and everybody else would too. And I think uh, for that reason we ought to give him credit, which has nothing to do with the merits of communism,
0: nothing whatever. It's a personal thing, that. Oh, uh, perhaps some might. I, I, I should point this out. When I tried to reach you over the phone from London the other day, and the operator heard, the, you know, the part of the message, she's, oh, he's saying to me, oh, you're one of them band-the-bomb-boys, eh? As that wasn't my interest at this moment, though I'm very sympathetic with Lord Russell. I should like to reach him because he's a celebrated figure in our world. This is part of my job. But her comment, by the way, was not a hostile one or unkind one, merely a quizzical one. And so people, a great many people, are merely wondering. Uh, They would use the phrase fanatic, you know. Oh, them little fanatics who walk along the road, see. How would you answer them when they say, well, Lord Russell is with fanatical young people? at this moment he's fanatical on the subject. This phrase is used now and then, you hear. How do you reply to that? I just uh,
1: wait for time to persuade them. Everybody who's ever stood for anything that was any good whatever has been accused of being a fanatic, and that's just, uh, well, I mean, it's an occupational hazard, you might say. You just have to live it down, and uh, I think that a very great many certainly among the young, do not regard me as a fanatic, because uh, oddly enough, they think they'd rather be alive than dead. (laughs) I wonder why.
0: (laughs) Lord Russell, uh, this leads us to the subject of the man, the thoughtful man at a certain time when tensions are high and headlines are wild. Uh, You said somewhere, and I know you as a young, later on you became disenchanted with Ibsen. But an enemy of the people, yes. uh, one man can be right and a whole group can be wrong, and you have said it on occasion, the minority yes. at one time, and so many times, is right and eventually what he says turns out to be true. Well, that is so. You will find all uh,
1: advances that have been of any importance have been initially made by a very small minority, perhaps one only and have gradually spread. And the man who makes any advance that is really beneficial to humanity is always persecuted by
0: humanity. It's a law of history. A law of history that would be applicable to today, I suppose, since on the subject of... this is not unrelated, Lord Russell, the situation today and the lectures you gave on books influenced your youth because what you read and what you are certainly determines the very things you do at this moment. You were speaking of Gibbon once and why he impressed you. Uh, In Gibbon, you, uh, you saw a stately historical procession. And even Gibbon, you recognize that cultural values at one time or another survive, even the inroads of barbarism. But this, you assume, could not happen today if the bomb were ever to fall. All would go then, would it not? Well, I'm afraid so, you see.
1: If you try to think of the conditions of life for the few survivors after a nuclear war, you will see that they are really very, very desperate indeed. The food that they would naturally eat will be poisoned. It will be all, uh, you mustn't eat it. You could only eat very, very special food. Uh, the Uh, lines of communication will be all destroyed so that you'll depend on local food you won't be able to import it Uh, the people will be all in a state of hysteria because of the dreadful experience they've gone through Uh, the uh, children will be very largely uh, um, idiots or monsters and no good at all and uh, the future of uh, such a collection of, well, they'd all be small bands of roving brigands who would have to steal the food from each other because it wouldn't be enough. And I don't see much that's good coming out of
0: that. Assume then, Lord Russell, governments find or recover their sanity. Assume this. Their ideas you have, you wrote somewhere, uh, the world in which you would like to live. And you spoke of three requisites for a stable world, as I remember. Yes. Do you remember what those were? Uh, Yes.
1: Uh, Well, the first
0: requisite, uh, I think, for a a really stable world, the first
1: requisite is a world government with a monopoly of all the major weapons of war so that nobody could hope to fight against it. Uh, That's uh, the first requisite. The next requisite is a great diminution of fanaticism, that uh, people should cease to hold the view that was held by the Inquisition, and is still held by the great majority of mankind, that uh, a person who doesn't agree with me ought to be exterminated. Uh, That is the general view nowadays, and that would have to change, and that's rather difficult. I think uh, there would have to be a certain economic equality throughout the world, because if one part of the world is rich and another poor, the poor part will envy the rich part, the rich part will be frightened of that envy, and you will get the sort of tension that builds up to war. So that I think there would have to be a raising of the level of the underdeveloped countries, Ultimately, everybody should be at least as well off as people are in the United States. Uh, those
0: are the main requisites for a stable world. I think, too, you mentioned the w- some way of stemming the population explosion, that, yes. too, I suppose. Uh, of course, that's quite necessary, because uh, with the improvement of medicine,
1: uh, infants don't die in sufficient numbers. In old days, The world was kept going by the deaths of infants. If you had a family of ten, you were very lucky if three survived. Well, that's no longer the case. And uh, therefore you have to see that there are not too many infants. That is an important condition of stability. But that I confidently expect to see happen if there isn't a nuclear war.
0: And so, assume then there is no war, that is, we are saying There's a tremendous job ahead, is it not? Half the world, I believe, is underfed, is it not, today? No, more than half. half. Yes, two-thirds. This, then, I suppose, could be one of the projects. I mean, science, then. Science can be devoted... see, look what people are like. You go to people in the United States and you
1: say to them, or go to people in this country and you say to them, two-thirds of the world are undernourished. Now... If we didn't spend our time on nuclear weapons, we could nourish these people. Oh yes, they say part of them—they're only black men or something. Doesn't matter about them, and consequently, you know, they—everybody is surprised to find that these undernourished people don't love them.
0: <laughs> so then, uh, the way to win—if uh, not love, certainly respect might be a, uh, some slight change in attitude.
1: Yes, I think so. Well, if you could only get people uh, interested in the welfare of others and not interested in power, it's this
0: lust for power that is at the root of the trouble. Remember, you you pointed out some hypothetical case. If this lust for power could not some way or other be eliminated. Uh, you, you were saying, assume mad dogs ran about in Berlin today, mm-hmm. an epidemic of rabies broke out, how both sides would be working together yeah. to eliminate this epidemic. Well, they certainly would. Uh, they wouldn't stop about politics. I worked it out
1: rather that, of course, you might say, oh, well, I hope the mad dogs will bite more people on the other side than on our side. But <laughs> I, I don't think that is what would happen, no. Only it does happen with the politicians. The politicians do bite more people on one side than on the other. And they're really politicians just like mad dogs. <coughs>
0: oh. <laughs> Hello. Russell, well, is there a way of reaching politicians... Uh, euphemistically called statesmen you, these days.
1: States. They reach them through the general public. First you have to convert the general public, and then the politicians will, of course, follow suit, because all they want is to get re-elected.
0: First you have to convert the general public, and this leads us to this dilemma again, don't we? Mass communications being what they are, and most of the press, the world over, each side representing more or less the uh, establishment position. How can the mass of the population be reached, then?
1: Well, uh, aren't we reaching it at this moment?
0: I think uh, the answer is
1: that uh, you have to behave in some manner uh, which uh, interests people, and they want to know about it. And uh, however the mass media are against you, if you know how to behave uh, in a manner that excites people's interest. You can overcome that barrier. It's a difficult problem. Uh, That was why we took to civil disobedience. We thought this was a means of overcoming this barrier. And uh, on the whole, we do get more or less known. I mean, uh, there are a great many people who know that there is such a movement, and uh, there are even some who know why. And I think uh, in the course of time, if we're given time, uh, we should be able to do it. But of course, it's a race against destruction. Because at any moment, the whole world may be wiped out. But uh, if it isn't wiped out,
0: we shall in time manage it. Well, Lord Russell, suppose some people say to you, I don't want to violate the law or some see, when you uh, civilly disobey. They'll say, you are a violator of the law. How would you answer that, sir?
1: <laughs> well, I should say, now, look here, my dear fellow. Have you ever read any history? Have you ever heard of the early Christians? Did they obey the law? They were told to worship the emperor, and they said they wouldn't. And uh, so they suffered. Have you ever heard of anything of value in the world that has been done? without somebody violating the law. Galileo violated the law. He said the earth moved, and the law said it didn't, and so he was duly punished. And uh, you'll find that everybody who's made any advance has uh, had to violate the law at some time. The law represents what people thought right some time ago, because it takes time to enact a law. And uh, when circumstances change, what was right ceases
0: to be. Lord Russell, what is the kind of world you would like to live in? You've written of this, the kind of world you would like to live in. The world I should like to live in would be a very nice world. I (laughs) I don't
1: know how to make it. I should like to live in a world where uh, uh, children were brought up as far as possible freely so that they shouldn't be filled with rebellious impulses, but should be happy and friendly. I should like to live in a world where those of men's impulses which are not possessive would have free scope and all sorts of encouragement. You know I divide impulses into possessive and uh, uh, creative. If you write a poem, you don't prevent another man from writing a poem. If you eat food, you do prevent him from eating that food. And so if there's a shortage of food, you get conflicts between people. So you must have the material, uh, material comforts sufficiently su- supplied. But what happens always, in all societies that have ever existed, is that the creative impulses are cramped uh, by uh, politicians or by churches or by something like that. That the man who has an important new idea or a man who has an important new way of feeling is punished for it, although that would be a solution of a great many of our troubles. Now I should like creative impulses free and encouraged. And I should like the... We spoke of power a moment ago. I should like the, the power impulses to go into creation. That uh, if you could write poetry, you write poetry. If you could compose music, you should compose music. That, uh, or in lesser ways, everybody. He can make a beautiful garden. There's always something creative a person can do. And uh, I should like their energies directed in those ways and not
0: to thwarting the rest of mankind. Is this world, Lord Russell, possible in our time, would you say? The world in which creativity is free? I think hardly in our time, no. I think
1: we can move towards it. You see, it's a matter of degree. I mean, uh, on the whole... uh, In some ways, things are better than they used to be. People used to be burnt alive, and uh, now they're only slowly starved, uh, which I suppose is slightly better, but I don't know. And uh, you can uh, take steps. Uh, You can't get very far in our world
0: because there's such a lot to do. Lord Russell, uh, I remember I was about to ask you a question at the very beginning. It dealt with your... Uh, speaking of books that influenced your youth and there was a... you spoke on one of the BBC broadcasts that we heard of Shelley and you liked Shelley for several reasons. At the time when you were young uh, I, I think you were somewhere between the ages of fifteen and twenty-one when you'd read these books that you talked about. Yeah. And you spoke of this being a formative period in your life. The Well, yes, because I was getting to know the, the great literatures of the world and uh, it is rather
1: an exciting you uh, uh, new vistas perpetually opening before you and uh, certainly I liked Shelley because he had a vision of what the world might be and I still like him for that, though of course uh, it's a much more difficult matter getting there than he thought it was he thought the kings in the Holy Alliance were the obstacle and if they were got out of the way the world would be happy well they all did now
0: but we're not happy i remember this uh that i read to uh, lord Russell, Latham, this stanza of yours the world's great age begins anew the golden years return the earth doth like a snake renew her winter weeds outworn heaven smiles and faiths and empires gleam like wrecks of a dissolving dream And you speak of this apocalyptic hope of shelley do you still feel this today
1: Well, yes, it's it's a hope. It's grown rather rather distant. I mean, I think we're a long way from it. But it remains a hope. It's what human life could be. And uh, I think in gloomy moments, it's a good thing to reflect what a glorious and splendid and happy and wonderful
0: thing human life could be if only human beings would let it. If only human beings would let it. And again, I think of uh, uh, one of radio broadcasts of yours. If only human beings could forget all else but their humanity. I think you said that. For to forget all the trivia that separates them. Yes, I said remember your
1: humanity and forget the rest. And by the rest, I meant their reasons for hating other
0: human beings. Lord Russell, anything else that uh, you would care to say? I know we merely, uh, during this hour or less, scratched the surface of your thoughts on today, yesterday, man, man and his dilemma today. Anything you'd care to say that we haven't uh, discussed thus far or talked about?
1: Well, I should just like
0: to say this in general, that uh, I
1: admire in the present world uh, those men that I think are doing their best to lead the world away from war. And uh, those are sometimes on one side, sometimes on the other this uh, fixed conviction uh, on both sides that only their side wants to avoid war. This is a delusion. But uh, I will admire a communist who does what Khrushchev did in the Cuba crisis. I will admire a man on our side who does any similar thing. I don't think that people should be judged by their ideology, they should be judged by their attitude to the imminent peril of disaster which faces us all because we are bigoted, because we are filled with hatred of other ideologies, because we cannot remember that after all the humanity which we share controls most of our interests. And the immense majority of the interests of East and West are exactly identical. And if we could remember that, we might perhaps be a little less unwise, a little less destructive in our public
0: policies. Lord Russell, Bertrand Russell, thank you very much. Mm. Lord Lord Russell, you were saying... As you're poking the fire now, let you poke that fire. Ain't that cool? It's warm inside here. Lord Russell, you, you were speaking of Penryn Dydreth. Yeah. You better get that big chunk of coal first. I think I'll describe Lord Russell uh, po- uh, poking, stoking the fire. There's a huge chunk of coal. That you're putting in, this is sort of like a sports commentary. <laughs> at 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 you're putting into the fireplace. I notice a certain design in you doing it, almost architectural in fashion. <laughs> and it's uh, there's one tough piece of coal that's making it. The phrase itself, this the city of Penryn Didreth, Lord Russell. Yeah. Penryn Dydrith. It's a tough phrase, and for me to say, what does that mean roughly? Well, basically,
1: uh, I believe it means. The green hill between two estuaries, but I can't vouch for that exactly.
0: Why have you you chosen this particular uh, locale for a specific reason, this place?
1: Oh, I like North Wales. I've known North Wales uh, since I was a boy, and I like the scenery here, and I have some friends who live in the immediate neighbourhood, and uh, on the whole it seemed nice, and I found this house rather pleasant. So I settled here.
0: One question I want to ask about Wales, North Wales, Lord mm. Russell. It's now close to December. There's so much green. Is it green all year round? Oh, yes.
1: It's, it's There's very, very little frost or snow here. It's a, You see, it's a sea climate.
0: Beautiful. Mm. It's a lovely view. So that's what that is, an estuary, now I know. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> It's now uh, a couple of hours after the Russell interview we feel pretty good about things at the moment feel good that uh, we met Lord Russell and have him on tape but I doubt very much whether this could have been swung without the help of Phyllis Evans, Mrs. Merritt Evans, who drove us through just about the most beautiful countryside I've seen in a long time and it's as uh, Bertrand Russell said, "Yes, green almost all the year round. Yet there were some, some uh, brick brick coloured uh, foliage around too. And saw the slate where the quarrymen and worked. And that's rough, but the verdure of nature still intact. Well, fellas, many things to ask you about you, an American, mm. uh, living in Wales with <laughs> Mered and your daughter. Your feelings. Uh, you pretty much a Welsh in feeling now."
2: Oh, no. I'm that I'm curious combination. I really have a foot in both camps. I, I, I realize Wales' problems, and I love Wales, and I do anything that I can to help the cause of the language and to help the country as a country. But I don't think any American woman particularly can ever be anything but an American.
0: Well, while you're here right now, before we catch that train that takes us back to London, a couple of questions about living in Wales or in this United Kingdom. And one of the big points that I told you about uh, Mary Papyrus, the the waitress uh, from London, who I interviewed and at her house with the four kids, and she was marvelous. But she had this one bone to pick with a particular doctor who seemed to be a martinet. And the impression she might have given is that national health is not working. It wasn't that, she was merely saying she had trouble with this doctor and he was just a louse, you know. (laughs) But you have lived in America and now you live in Wales. In one case uh, there is a doctor, there is no national health as we know it here. Uh, Now in Wales there is national health. What have you found out to be the difference?
2: Well, uh, I think that the basic difference is that the national health in this country is rightly termed national insurance and that's exactly what it is it is an insurance for people who live here that their life savings won't be wiped out by a serious illness of any member of the family and as far as actual medical care is concerned the doctor we had when we lived in Massachusetts I doubt if there's a better doctor in the whole of the world I don't think he could be approached anywhere he was marvelous but you come to Bangor and A city like Bangor, anywhere, whether it's say
0: Bangor, Wales, rather than Maine. Yeah,
2: city like Bangor, Wales, anywhere, whether it's in the United States or in Britain, you're going to have a limited choice of doctors, and you must pick the best out of this limited choice and you are allowed to pick your own doctor there's no question of your being assigned to some guy you can pick which one you want and that's exactly what we did we took about two months after we came here we polled our friends and said who's your doctor, what do you think of him and we found the one that we thought would suit us best and he is he's marvelous anything that needs to be done he comes out in the middle of the night if that's necessary he comes to the house if we're not well enough to come to the surgery and all prescriptions we pay for prescriptions but we pay a standard price two shillings which would be a little tiny bit more than about 25 cents and that includes whether we want aspirin on prescription or whether we want the most expensive antibiotics or whether he he chooses to prescribe them for us. Likewise, um, when Alinead a few months ago, Uh,
0: your 13-year-old daughter,
2: yeah, our our 13-year-old daughter a few months ago, we thought she had appendicitis, and they had her in and out of hospital examining her, and took x-rays, and found out it wasn't appendicitis, it was a spastic colon, which could be assumed to be appendicitis by the symptoms. Well, whisking her in and out of hospital, and all these exploratory doohickeys, and all the x-rays, would have cost us a small fortune in America, because they didn't operate. If they'd operated, we could have got it on Blue Shield. But since they didn't operate, you know, we would have paid through the nose, but we didn't pay a penny. Um, Likewise, when I had to get my glasses changed, you pay a fixed fee for your glasses, mm-hmm. and uh, that's that. I think it's something like half of what they actually cost. So that when I say insurance, this to me is a very real thing. I don't have to worry at all. Uh, if Mered should fall sick tomorrow and be out of work for six months, well, this would be a dreadful thing personally, but it wouldn't take every penny we've got in the bank.
0: Then, uh, I'm thinking about uh, national health and its effect upon upon people. Does it does it um, take away your choice of a doctor? You know, we, we're told you know, in America that if ever were to if the medical plan that was uh, proposed by the administration was defeated, uh, were to go into effect initiative would be destroyed. That is, would you have a right to choose your own doctor? Oh, absolutely. Do you do it?
2: Absolutely. Uh, The only limitation on choice would be the same limitation you have in the United States. Geographical, physical limitation. Obviously, you aren't going to choose, if you live in Wales, you aren't going to choose a doctor who's in London because he won't be able to come out on night calls. But uh, if you lived in New York, you wouldn't choose a doctor in Chicago either. You would choose a doctor in your area who'd be able to get to you within, say, 20 30 minutes and uh, I have a friend living in Menai Bridge now she doesn't like any of the... Uh, Menai
0: Bridge is where you live in Wales. That's
2: right little tiny village there are two doctors there she doesn't happen to care for either of them so she's booked with a doctor in Bomaris which is four miles away. My doctor is in Bangor
0: which it's is two miles away. National insurance both yep, cases. Absolutely. Uh, what, what... how do the doctor... any idea how the doctors feel about it here in England?
2: Um, Actually, I talked to them in 1948, when the plan first went in, then when I was back in 1955, and then when I came back this time, 1960. And it's quite fascinating, because in 48, I would say that probably the majority of the Medical Association did not want to go in. It was uh, sort of a fait accompli by the government. By 1955, when I came back, the tide had changed completely. Doctors that I had talked to before who said this will never work, it will be abused, and so on, had found that the abuses were in the early months, and they were largely people who had neglected to have things done for years because they couldn't afford it. Um, For example, the butcher in our village in Harlech, when I first went to Hadlech did not have one sound tooth in his head. He was the most revolting sight I've ever seen. All rotten stumps. Medical health came in two years later. He had a beautiful set of false teeth, but he was actually too poor to pay for them himself. It was a small village, and he just had subsistence, and that he was got all. This free? And this he free. got this free. Now, Mered's mother back in the old days when you know they had nothing per week and 11 kids to bring up on nothing per week she couldn't afford to go and have spectacles prescribed you know what she did and everybody of her class did they went to Woolworths and you know they have a counter of glasses on Woolworths and she just picked up one after another until she found a pair that she thought made her see better and she wore those it's a wonder she isn't blind but she couldn't possi- she couldn't have afforded the doctor's bill for examination, and she couldn't have afforded the spectacles. When Mered went off to college, this is how little money there was. When he went off to college, he went with his mother's life savings in his pocket, which was six pounds, which is about 18 bucks. And she was a very frugal woman. And so
0: now she has, gla- uh, what, the glasses she wears now are free?
2: Absolutely, yes.
0: What's this? Well, <laughs> this is a superfluous question. You what you said, but uh, the Evans family budget before and after, you know.
2: Ah, well, yes. We kept a budget in America. And, of course, what happens now is this. We pay per week, you know. National health isn't free, as people say it is. We have little insurance cards, they're called, which are stamped every week by your employer. And that is taken, a percentage of it is taken out of your salary, a small percentage. I think it uh, amounts to, what about, Uh, less than $3 a week but that's taken out and your employer pays a similar amount and the government pays more as well it's subsidized but this means that we are paying per week now what would happen in America was that being young and full of beans we thought you know we were immortal and would never get ill and then all of a sudden bing like that I had to have a major operation when we were in Boston and I had Blue Cross and Blue Shield at the time but although it covered all my hospital bills it did not cover the surgeon completely I had to pay two hundred and fifty dollars on top of what Blue Cross and Blue Shield covered. Plus, after I got home, I was on a medication for a year, and that medication was very expensive. And that, of course, was not covered by the medical plan. So that when we got hit, we got hit hard.
0: Well then, some other.